We're going to look at Joshua chapter 13, verse 1. The topic we're going to find, an aging Joshua is told by God there is still much work to be done settling the promised land. The title of our message, New Country for Old Men. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for uh, a chance to celebrate today. And uh, Lord, I think uh, when I think about the children of Israel and the nation of Israel, Lord, I see that you created a, a calendar for them with many feasts and celebrations to commemorate various things. And so, uh, Lord, I know that uh, your heart is excited when we get together and celebrate. Uh, for sure, Lord, every Sunday we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Every day we do that. But there are times when uh, we set aside that are special, and today is one of those times, and I appreciate, Lord, what you've done with it and through it so far. Uh, help our time in the Word to be valuably spent, Lord. Uh, may we learn something, not just about Joshua and the children of Israel and even about ourselves, but may we be encouraged, Lord, in our service and our love to you. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name, and those who agreed said, amen. The article in the New York Post was titled, Hollywood Loves Aging Action Heroes. Here's an excerpt from the article. Age is just a number, at least when it comes to action heroes. That was Spider-Man right there. Grab a juice box and take a hike, Taylor Lautner. The biggest names in action movies today are virtually identical to the 1980s and early 1990s. Sylvester Stallone is 68. Arnold Schwarzenegger is 67. Liam Neeson is 62. Wee Pup Bruce Willis is 60. Then the writer made this comment. These guys don't mind working around all those loud gunshots. Their hearing probably went years ago. <laughs> Joshua and Caleb were the aging action heroes of the Israelites at the time of the conquest of the promised land. About 45 years earlier, Joshua and Caleb had been two of the 12 spies sent in by Moses to give a report of the promised land. You remember the story. Ten spies emphasized the strength of the walled cities and the terrifying presence of giants, while Joshua and Caleb emphasized walking by faith and believing that God had already given them the victory. The Israelites defied God and refused to enter the promised land. As a discipline, God decreed that all those above 20 years of age would die off wandering in the wilderness over the next almost 40 years. All that is except for Joshua and Caleb. God preserved them, and they entered the promised land along with the younger generation. The initial conquest of the promised land took about seven years. The Israeli military broke the backbone of Canaanite power in three decisive battles. In the central region, they had taken the strategic fortified city of Jericho, sort of dividing the land in half so that they could defend themselves. In the south, they had defeated a combined force at Gibeon. And then in the north, they had defeated a huge enemy contingent by the waters of Merom. It was now time for each tribe to receive its inheritance of land and to take the individual responsibility of driving out any remaining resistance. Thus we read in verse 1 of Joshua 13, Now Joshua was old, advanced in years, and the Lord said to him, You are old, advanced in years, and there remains very much land yet to be possessed. If you're insightful or paying any attention at all, we could just stop right here because that's the message 
message from the Lord this morning. We might be old, but there is a lot of land left to be possessed. Now, we know that from the last chapter of uh, Joshua, he died at the age of 110. So he probably was at least 100 years old here in chapter 13. You might not think 100 is very old for a Bible guy in the Old Testament. Some of them had extremely long lifespans, but the phrasing God used indicates that his years of serving had left Joshua battle-worn. Another translation, the complete Jewish Bible, translates the opening phrase, now Joshua was old, the years had taken their toll. The Lord was saying, man, you're tore up, Joshua. I mean, he was. I've never been big on reunions, but I've been to a couple. There are always a few guys and gals to whom the years have not been kind. You don't normally go up to them and say, man, the years have taken their toll on you. I remember you a lot differently. Don't tell anybody we ever went out on a date, that kind of a thing. God was simply stating a fact. If you're in battle, familiar with spiritual warfare, you're going to look like you were. It's my favorite scene from the movie Jaws. Chief Brody, Hooper, and Quint in the galley of their boat, the Orca, comparing scars. It starts with Brody touching a recently acquired abrasion on his forehead. Quint pulls his hair aside to show a permanent lump from being hit with a spittoon in a bar on St. Paddy's Day. Hooper shows a scar on his forearm where a classmate bit him during recess. Quint responds by showing a scar on his forearm attributed to a wire burn. Next, Hooper rolls up his sleeve to show the bite of a moray eel. Quint counters with a knife wound he received in a fight. Hooper shows a bull shark bite on his leg. Quint, the scar from a thresher shark. About that time, Brody sheepishly checks the scar from his appendectomy. <laughs> Finally, Hooper points to his heart, telling them it was broken by Mary Ellen Moffat. And he, he wins the competition just as the shark attacks the orca, and it's on from that moment on. But wounded and scarred isn't how we normally think of Christians. It's not how we normally think of ourselves as Christians, but we should. After his resurrection, Jesus invited Thomas to examine the scars on his glorified body. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, for, he did not say, for did he not say to Thomas, reach hither thy finger and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless but believing. I wish to draw your attention to the ample fact that our Lord Jesus Christ, when he rose again from the dead, had in his body the marks of his passion. If he had pleased, he could readily have removed them. He rose again from the dead that he might have erased from his body everything which could be an indication of what he had suffered and endured before he descended into the tomb. But no, instead thereof, there were the pierced hands and the feet and there was the open side. We're studying Revelation on Sunday mornings and we've seen that when Jesus steps forward in heaven to take the scroll and open the seals that are the great tribulation, he does so as the lamb who was slain bearing the scars of his crucifixion. Serving the Lord can take its toll on you. I can't help but think of the Apostle Paul and the weight of the physical and emotional toll serving the Lord took on him. He described it in his own inspired words in his most autobiographical letter in 2 Corinthians. Here's the life of the Apostle Paul 
before he got into some of the greatest trouble of his life, he says of himself, I was in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, he's talking about beatings, in prison more frequently, in deaths often. Now we only know of one situation where he was stoned to death and raised from the dead, but apparently he must have died other times and uh, was raised by the Lord. From the Jews five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils at sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness, in toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, beside the other things what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches." You read something like that and, and you feel like you're Chief Brody, right? And, and you're looking, she, I would look at maybe the scar on my ankle from where I, I broke my leg at the church softball game. Serving the Lord. <laughs> well, I was. But after that, the Apostle Paul would probably just say, hey, you need to be stoned to death a couple times and then, <laughs> then we can talk. Amy Carmichael powerfully expressed this aspect of walking with Jesus in her classic poem, No Scar. Hast thou no scar, no hidden scar on foot or side or hand? I hear thee sung as mighty in the land. I hear them hail thy bright ascendant star. Hast thou no scar? Hast thou no wound? Yet I was wounded by the archers, spent, leaned me against a tree to die and rent by ravening beasts that compassed me, I swooned. Hast thou no wound, no wound, no scar? Yet as the master shall the servant be, and pierced are the feet that follow me, but thine are whole, can he have followed far who hast no wound or scar? Now while we all as Christians would consent to the truth that we are soldiers, we need to come to the awareness we are wounded warriors, not weekend warriors. We are not reservists who may or may not be called into active duty, and there's no term to our tour of duty. We are lifers in the Lord's army. Maybe this morning, you know, in the midst of our celebration, you're realizing that uh, you're, you're old in the Lord. Things haven't always been easy for you. Maybe they're not easy right now. Maybe you're going through some of the deepest trials of your life. Hast thou no wound, no scar? It's to be expected. If you're going to be in the battle, you're going to be battle-worn. Ideally, in our culture, we now retire around age 55. We see retirement as a time of leisure and pleasure, a time to do what we want with our own time. Joshua was almost twice that old when God gave him maybe the most difficult task he had yet faced, the dividing of the land. It would be followed by his needing to fight to drive out enemies who remained in his inheritance. And he was 100 years old. As long as you're alive, there's going to be more work to do for the Lord, never less. If it's true that when we are weak, he is strong, you'd expect much more difficult spiritual tasks as you age. You ever think about that? We all know that when I am weak, God is strong. So guess what? As you get weaker uh, in your old age, the tasks get more difficult so that the Lord's glory can be more profound. Jeremiah understood this when God said to him, if you have run with the footmen and they have wearied you, 
then how can you contend with horses? And if in the land of peace in which you trusted they wearied you, then how will you do in the floodplain of the Jordan? And so the Lord's saying to Joshua, Joshua's you know, doing a little bit of complaining like we sometimes do as Christians. And uh, the Lord says, hey, let me give you some perspective here. Uh, so far, all I've asked you to do is run with other footmen. Uh, I haven't given you anything really difficult to do. And if you're tired now, it's going to be really hard for you to race against horses because that's what I have planned for you. And so you better start depending upon the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, you're going to be left in the dust. Remember the movie Top Gun? At the end, after Maverick and Iceman defeat the Russian MiGs, they're told they can have any assignment they want. In one successful dogfight, they had arrived as naval pilots. Tom Cruise chose to go back and get the girl and be an instructor at Top Gun School. He peaked in his very first combat mission, and he lived off its glory for the rest of his career. That kind of thinking has no place in our walk with the Lord. If Joshua and Caleb were Maverick and Iceman, they'd have gone on to Russia and wiped out their entire Air Force. That's, that's the kind of thinking. But we, so we do. I mean, I don't know if you're familiar with that movie. I'm not sure you should be, but uh, it's, it's a famous pop culture movie. I, feel, I can't use references like that in Washington, so I use them here. But anyway, <laughs> movies? Yeah, no. I'm just... I'm just at their expense. I love those guys. They're great guys, and this will be all edited out anyway. So anyway, <laughs> Joshua's advanced age did not excuse him from making continued spiritual progress. He had unfinished business. Until you die or the church is raptured, you and I will have unfinished business with the Lord. Ask him today, right now, to show you some. What has been left undone? What is he leading you to do? It was time for the Israelites to divide the land uh, and turn loose each tribe in their inheritance to continue the conquest. How did they do? Well, there's a report card in the sequel to Joshua in the book of Judges. I'll read a couple of verses from it. This is from Judges 3, verses 5 and 6. Thus the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. They took their daughters to be their wives, and they gave their daughters to their sons, and they served their gods. Tribe after tribe failed to drive out their enemies, and instead they quite literally got into bed with them. I'm not sure when it became popular to name each generation. According to a professor at Texas A&M, and I quote, in America there are six living generations, which are six fairly distinct groups of people. As a generalization, each generation has different likes, dislikes, and attributes. Her list reads like this. Born before 1927, the greatest generation. I feel like everything's downhill from there, right? I mean, where, where are you, you going to get? A great generation? I don't know. Born between 1927 and 1945, the silent generation. Between 1946 and 1964, baby boomers. 65 and 80, Generation X. 1981 to 2000, Generation Y, the millennials. Born before 2000, or excuse me, after 2001, Generation Z, not for zombie, by the way. It's because they're too young to have characteristics, so Z is a placeholder until they show themselves. Now, some are calling the current generation Generation-like because of Facebook and Instagram likes and the trauma of not receiving likes for your postings. Don't laugh, you know. <laughs> if people don't like what you say, you think, what, what am I, 
chopped liver. They like this. This guy's just eating an omelet, and they like that. I'm at least testifying for Jesus. I get one. Oh, there's one like. That's from some guy that's trying to sell me something. Don't you love Facebook now? Everything is like, you won't believe what this guy did after he cashed his check. And you're like, oh, click, you know, and stuff. It's crazy. I put up pictures of my food because I know you enjoy that. But anyway, I'd call the generation that Joshua led into the promised land generation epic fail because they did. Joshua had won a decisive victory, but their enemies remained fierce enemies needing to be battled. Sounds just like us, does it not? Our Joshua is the Lord Jesus Christ. He defeated our enemies. Speaking of the cross at Calvary in Colossians 2.15, it says, He disarmed principalities and powers, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in the cross. So he, he disarmed them. And he triumphed over them. He defeated them at the cross. The devil and his minions were soundly defeated, yet until Jesus returns to earth the devil will go on warring against us. Israel's tribes were to fight from a position of assured victory in order to secure their inheritance. All they had to do was engage the enemy. The judges says God left enemies there so that they would learn war and not get lazy in their walk with him. All they had to do was fight and they were guaranteed to win. It's like fixing a fight. The fight was fixed. You know, you see these movies and stuff where they, hey, we need you to go down in round five, you know, and the guy goes down and it's fixed. Well, this is fixed from a spiritual point. God says, hey, there's an enemy. It's, he looks fierce. He's a giant. He's got the hill country. But all you need to go is go against him and he will be defeated. I've already defeated him. But they said, yeah, that's, uh, we're not really into that. How about we just get along? Can't we all just get along? Let's marry their daughters and give our, uh, you know, daughters to them and all of that kind of thing. And so the promised land is a type for us of the Christian life. With no disrespect intended toward many popular hymns, the promised land is not typical of heaven because there are enemies in it and there are battles to be fought and there are wounds to be earned doing so. So the question for us today, whether we've been here 30 years or 30 minutes is, where am I living what is your spiritual address? You have at least five choices, and here's what I mean. Warren Wiersbe, in his Joshua commentary, Be Strong, compares four geographic locations associated with Israel to four possible spiritual states we may occupy, and I see a fifth, and here's what they are. Egypt was the place of death and bondage from which Israel was delivered. This illustrates salvation that we have by faith in Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb. The question then is, are you saved? If you are not, you're living in Egypt, you're living according to your natural appetites, you're not realizing your purpose for living. Worse, your final destination is hell, separated from God in a place of eternal conscious torment forever and ever. Then there's the promised land that represents the Christian life as it ought to be. Conflict, victory, faith, obedience, spiritual riches and rest, where we are constantly claiming more of our inheritance in Jesus Christ. It is cooperating with the Lord who promised to complete the work that he has begun in you. It's going against the enemy and claiming victory after victory. You'll be wounded, you'll get scars along the way, but there'll be a battle glory in them. Then there's wilderness wandering. That depicts believers who live in unbelief and disobedience to God. They come to a place of decision or crisis and they refuse to obey the Lord. 
They're delivered from Egypt, but Egypt is still in their hearts. They meander through life as wanderers. You're in the wilderness if your life is mostly characterized by carnal, worldly pursuits and if you choose to disobey the clear teachings of the Bible. Two of the Jewish tribes, Reuben and Gad, settled on the border of the Promised Land rather than going in as God had decreed. The land east of the Jordan River was great for their livestock, for their livelihood. This tells me that it's possible to be a borderland Christian. You're content to be saved, but you want to be left alone to pursue your own best interests. You're not living in sin, but you're falling short in real commitment to Jesus. You could say you're a Christian, but you're not a disciple. You're just hanging out on the border. Then the fifth location is Babylon. It was to Babylon the Jews were exiled for a time of discipline for willful rebellion. You might be enduring a time like that right now, but if you are, know that whom the Lord loves, he disciplines in order to restore you. And so again, where am I living today? What is my address? If somebody, if you were going to send me a postcard today, where, which one of those places would it be addressed to? It needs to be addressed to the promised land and a walk with Jesus in which I'm growing more and more like him every day. As for our 30 years, we are aging action heroes and heroines. 30 years is just the warm-up. There remains very much land yet to be possessed. Amen? Amen? Let's get folks out of Egypt and let's stay out of the wilderness, out of the borderland, out of Babylon. Let's conquer our enemies, claiming more and more of our inheritance on our way home. Amen?